Greetings, little one. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Bad witch! I'm not a witch, I'm your wife! What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt. What's thou like to live deliciously? Got better. Dost thou comprehend? Welcome to Real Magic, the podcast at the crossroads of real witchcraft and Hollywood magic, where paganism and the supernatural meet their reflections in movies and television, and where we talk about what real magical or life lessons we can learn from fictional witches from 100 years of moving pictures. I'll get you my pretty and your little dog too. Merry meet witches and weirdos, or maybe I should say movie meet. Uh, I don't know if that's going to stick, but we'll see. I do love puns. So welcome to the first episode of Real Magic. If you're a new listener starting with me here from the beginning, or if you're coming back to the first episode from way in the future, I am so happy and grateful that you decided to join me today, which means I should probably introduce myself. I am your host, your ghost host. Nope wrong movie. Jessica. Jessica Mason, that is, but you can call me Jess. My day job is writing about pop culture, mainly over at the feminist geek website, The Mary Sue. Before that, I had some other fun jobs. I was a lawyer. I was in customer service. I was an opera singer. But even then, I was writing and enjoying pop culture as a fangirl. And I still do. Thick, conventions, ships, all of it. I think it's important to get that out there because I interact with media as a fangirl in a transformative way. But for way longer than I've been a writer, I've been a witch and a pagan. I came to the craft in Wicca around 1995 or so, but even before then I was your typical witchy weird kid that was way too into fantasy movies and fairy tales and would run around the house with the cordless phone as my wand, like you do. And so this podcast is about bringing those two passions together. So what is this show? Every episode of Real Magic will tackle a movie or TV show, or sometimes just one episode, sometimes a wider look at a series, and dig deep into how it portrays witches or pagans and the magical world. Is it accurate? The answer will always be no. Spoiler. Is it entertaining? How does it connect with real magic? Why and how is it magical to us as the audience? In general, I'll be doing this as conversations with special guests, including actors, writers, and other witches but not today. For our first episode, there's no special guest because, well, it's never a bad idea to work out the kinks of recording and publishing before we get some real professionals on here. But also before we dive into guests and all your favorite witchy movies, I wanted to talk, just you and me, about one of my favorite witchy movies. Now, I want you to think of a witch. What is the first image that comes to mind? The odds are pretty good. Your first thought may have been of a cackling, green-skinned old hag on her broom. Where did that image come from? Well, the answer is our first movie, MGM's 1939 masterpiece, The Wizard of Oz. A truly wonderful movie that has had more influence on the way we see witches as a pop culture trope than almost anything. We're going to talk today about why that movie matters and why it's influenced culture the way it has and why that movie is literally magic because it means so many different things to different people. And that's really our theme for this episode. 
how one story and one depiction of witches can have so many different meanings and effects in the world. So please join me as we follow the yellow brick road of cultural investigation and appreciation to the Emerald City of Insight. Again, we're working on our metaphors. So The Wizard of Oz is the perfect film to start with in terms of discussing witches and media because it has so many layers. It has layers of meaning, layers of intention, of history. Just look at this film's place in Hollywood lore and the impact it's had on queer culture, the way it solidified and changed archetypes of witches, and yes, the deep spiritual and even pagan truths some of us, including me, find in The Wizard of Oz. So... It's good to be discussing the movie that has had the biggest cultural impact of any film, maybe, ever. I'm not even kidding there. In 2018, when actual researchers tried to find out what movie had the biggest impact of all time, the winner was The Wizard of Oz. It beat out Star Wars, for Porg's sake. It's a big deal. And it's really cool, honestly, that such an influential movie is all about magic and witches, I mean, Star Wars is also about space magic, but we'll get to that on another show. But it's also one of my favorite movies of all time. I saw The Wizard of Oz when I was maybe three. I don't actually remember, but my mom loves to tell the story of the way it was the first movie my parents brought home and rented when they got this cool new thing called a VCR. And yes, it was the 80s. I was, to put it mildly, obsessed with this movie as a kid. I came down the next morning and asked, where is Dorothy? I made my mom watch it again and again until Dorothy had to go back to the video store and then my parents had to buy it. And I've been obsessed with witches ever since. A lot of pop culture people talk about the movies that made them love movies, and I'm pretty sure for me that was The Wizard of Oz. But it's also the movie that maybe made me into a witch. I wanted to be the Wicked Witch of the West, or Glinda, or Dorothy, depending on the day. But mainly, I just wanted to be a witch. Years later in college, Wicked, the musical, would be a huge inspiration for me as I looked for a way to live authentically and defy gravity. But later in life, after law school and marriage and changing careers to become a culture writer and having my own little girl who found magic in the movies... I came back to Oz because The Wizard of Oz is so endlessly fascinating and such a good movie. This is a tale of a girl who is taken from her home to another land, who meets with talking animals and magical people, unmasks a false god, and ultimately defeats evil through an act of compassion, then discovers the ultimate magical power was with her the whole time? That's a freaking myth. It's about a girl finding the divine and saving the world. Or it's about pre-beauty. Or it's about finding joy in the depression. Or it's about a queer metaphor. Or it's a story about American financial policy in the late 19th century. No matter how you see it, for most Americans, it's an icon of our childhoods that defined what magical worlds and witches looked like. And this movie is a classic because it can be all those things and more. There's a really good reason for this malleability, because The Wizard of Oz really does tell an archetypal story. There are countless stories of young characters, usually women but not always, traveling through another world to learn lessons about themselves and somehow save their loved ones or even the world. When you look later in cinema history, there are so many examples 
like Alice in Wonderland or Coraline or Labyrinth or Coco and Moana. Heck, even Halloween Town kind of fits into this archetype. But The Wizard of Oz was the first such movie to really show this on screen in pretty much every fantasy and kids movie where someone goes to another magical world and learns life lessons when they do owes their DNA to this film. Or do they? This was the first film to connect with the audiences long-term that told such tale, but it wasn't the first story of its kind. As I mentioned, Alice in Wonderland. The movie, the Disney one at least, came after. But the book came before. It's a book that actually influenced L. Frank Baum, though he thought it was too weird on its own. But the idea of a magical journey to the other world was so much more older than even that. When I call this an archetypal journey, I mean that in the most academic, literal sense, I'm talking Joseph Campbell, Hero's Journey, or Robert Graves, White Goddess type of archetypal stuff. Journeying to a different world is a huge theme in myths and legends, especially the pagan kind. Great heroes like Odysseus and Aeneas did it. Then so did Dante. Monkey in The Journey to the West did it too. He also went to the underworld. When heroines do it, it's very much about a spiritual journey to what becomes an elevated state. And we look at it this way, Dorothy is Persephone, hauled into another world by a violent force, leaving her maternal figure lost in longing for her. Or she's Psyche in the underworld, seeking a dangerous treasure at the behest of a fickle god, who ends up becoming kind of a higher being herself. Dorothy is a lost traveler crossing the veil into the fairy realm, where she meets dangerous magical creatures and queens, both fearsome and fair. When Dorothy discovers that the power to transport herself and to change her world has literally been there from the beginning, that's her coming into her own magic in relationship to the divine. It's transformational. It's awesome. And people have connected to it for almost a century. That's deep stuff, I know. And we haven't even touched on the ways The Wizard of Oz shows actual magic, the ways it shows magic can be cruel and kind, the way it's connected to nature, and most importantly, the way magic is always with us all along. And I'm sorry, is there a better metaphor for the patriarchy, the church, and other male-dominated power structures than a charlatan hiding behind a curtain behind a figure of a giant head that tells people to be afraid of him? That's pretty good, right? So the question we have to ask as we analyze this media is, was any of this intended? And now I'm a fangirl. That means, as I said, I interact with media in a transformational way. So what was intended sometimes isn't the most important thing, but it's still important to understand it. I'm also a journalist and a nerd, so knowing the history of this movie and specifically why it showed witches and magic in the way it did is important to me. So let's get into that. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the children's book, was written in 1900 by L. Frank Baum. Lyman Frank Baum himself was born in 1856, and he did not have the best childhood. He was a dreamy child, like me and so many of you, I'm guessing, who loved stories and to escape into fantasy which was understandable and was also hard when you're a kid living in the North during the Civil War. But you can already see Dorothy in there. So Baum started writing early in his life. 
But it wasn't about Winkies and witches at first. It was about chickens. I'm going to be a dweeb here and read a quote directly from his Wikipedia page because it's frankly amazing. Quote, At 20, Baum took on the national craze of breeding fancy poultry. He specialized in raising the Hamburg chicken. In March 1880, he established a monthly trade journal, The Poultry Record, and in 1886, when Baum was 30 years old, his first book was published, The Book of the Hamburgs, a brief treatise upon the mating, rearing, and management of different varieties of Hamburgs. Unquote. Like I said, that's amazing, and in general, Baum is kind of an inspiration for those of us that have changed careers later in life. But Baum really was more interesting than the chicken books make him sound. He was a performer. He was always at the center of attention. He embarked on a lot of businesses and ventures that burnt out and failed. He was, as they say, a character. And if there's a character in The Wizard of Oz, the movie that's most like him, it's probably Professor Marvel, the traveling charlatan Dorothy meets before heading home. And of course, that character is also the wizard and the faces of so many other characters present in the story, which makes sense sort of as Baum's legacy. Mentioning Professor Marvel, I have to take a side trip here into the spirit realm. I want to note that while spiritualism, the late 19th century movement built around contacting the dead and the beyond, was not a big part of The Wizard of Oz, but it's sort of present in the atmosphere of the tale. Professor Marvel uses a crystal ball, and so does the Wicked Witch. And there's just this idea of the spirits in the other world being close by. Now, Baum absolutely knew about spiritualism, just given when he lived and where. And in fact, in the early 1890s, he was the editor of a publication that did write about spiritualism, spiritualism and the occult. That's pretty neat. And I think you do see the influence in the Oz books. Who knows if he went to a seance, but that does sound like something he would be into. Frank Baum really loved the good life and creativity and everything indulgent and fun. He was a total Taurus. He was the kind of guy that would dress up as Santa for a party, or he would move his entire family out to South Dakota in 1888 and start a store there that burnt out and he failed at, like most of his businesses he did. By 1898, he was back in Chicago, writing about window displays. You know, those fancy ones with machines and models that you see at the holidays still at places like Bloomingdale's? You kind of see that influence in The Wizard of Oz, too, with his obsession with mechanical creatures and machines. But at the time, he was also writing Mother Goose stories for kids. Then in 1900, he wrote The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And then in 1902, he helped turn it into a musical play to promote the book so it would sell more copies, which it did. It was a huge success, and Baum wrote 14 sequels before he died in 1919. Now, there are so many influences in The Wizard of Oz, the book. Like I said, there's spiritualism, Baum's own life experiences in the American West during times of drought and depression was a big factor, and it came back to to the movie because the movie came out in another depression and tapped into that mindset. So that was a really interesting connection between the original book and Baum and the movie. But there were witches and wizards because this was a kid story. It was an American fairy tale. And well, you can't have a fairy tale without witches. But it's interesting that Baum had both bad witches and good ones. 
the wicked witches were wicked because they controlled and exploited people, which women weren't supposed to do, or let's be honest, people. But the women who used their powers in feminine, softer ways were acceptable. So we have Glinda, the good witch, in the model of a kind of nice northern domestic femininity. But then again, that's just my take on it. There are a lot of takes on the quote-unquote true meaning of The Wizard of Oz, the book especially. And yes, one popular interpretation is that the story is decidedly not kid-friendly. It's American fiscal policy in Reconstruction. The theory goes that the Yellow Book Road was a analogy for fake wealth, and the Emerald City, uh, they're both a stand-in for the gold standard and the falsity of paper money. The idea that everyone puts on these green spectacles and agrees that the city is emerald is the same as everyone agreeing that paper money has value. The gold standard and thus the yellow brick road are very rough and fluctuate, so the yellow brick road itself is very potmarked and hard to walk on, but Dorothy in her silver, yes, silver slippers, can easily walk on it because silver was a better standard than gold. The wizard with all his false powers, this theory says, represents the president, and the witches of the East and West represent exploitive business interests. In particular, the Wicked Witch of the West was a representation of railroad barons and other industrialists that were ruling over the American West, as the Wicked Witch of the West ruled over Winky Country. She did this, by the way, via exploited labor, the flying monkeys, who were under a curse to obey her. And some people theorize that this was a metaphor for indigenous and Chinese laborers being exploited by the robber barons and railroad barons of the West. That's a pretty good theory, but we're honestly not fully sure if that's what Baum intended. But who knows? It works. And as we'll see, this story endures because of all the different meanings we can find within it. Because that's the beauty of stories. They change in the telling and the retelling and in the hearing. But enough gold standard. Let's get back to the witches. Putting a witch into a story, good or bad, tapped into centuries of ideas about magic, about female power and the roles of women, even if Baum didn't intend it that way. He had a female heroine and a female magical guide and a female villain. That was pretty cool. And like I said, it was a change to have a good witch in there. And we can't overestimate and overemphasize how important it was to show that magic could be both good and bad. That's might be one of the reasons the story really caught on, because it made magic accept- accessible to everyone. Now, these works really took off, like I said, because it was this quintessentially American fairy tale. It was unique, and kids and audiences all over the country loved it. So it inevitably became part of the new, rather wicked industry that was rising up in the West, the movies. Now, MGM's Wizard of Oz from 1939 is not the first or even the second filmed version of The Wizard of Oz. There was a version in 1908 that was sort of a multimedia promotion made by Baum. And the Oz stories were so popular that Baum was able to start another business, the Oz Film Manufacturing Company, in 1914. Like a lot of his businesses, it didn't really thrive, but he oversaw several different Oz movies based on his various books. And there were versions of The Wizard of Oz in 1925 and 1932, after Baum had died. But 
The one we're talking about, and really the definitive version, is of course the one made by MGM in 1939. Let me just step back and be a film nerd for a moment. 1939 is amazing. It's arguably the year that represents the absolute pinnacle of the studio system and the so-called golden age of Hollywood under the studio system. The movies that came out all in one year over 80 years ago, they're amazing. Not only do we have The Wizard of Oz, we have Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, we have Ninochka, we have The Women, which is also from MGM and a movie you really need to see if you love classic films. And then we have the biggest daddy of them all, Gone with the Wind. Now, I'm not going to talk for hours about Gone with the Wind, even though I could. It has nothing to do with paganism, thankfully. But as a movie, it has a really interesting connection to The Wizard of Oz that makes you understand how movies were made back in the 30s. Because they were made by studios, not individuals. When Gone with the Wind entered production in early 1939, it was under the direction of George Cukor, who had been working on the project for about two years, interspersed with other stuff. But he was, uh, let's say, reassigned three weeks into production. Cukor was replaced by Victor Fleming, who was the credited director on Gone with the Wind. And that really had to hurt because he had been replaced by Victor Fleming just a few months before on The Wizard of Oz. It worked out fine. Cukor hopped over to direct The Women, also MGM, a movie that also shared a costume designer with The Wizard of Oz. His name was Adrian, and you can really tell the two movies have the same costume designer because the costumes in both are just fantastic. Anyways, watch The Women. It's great. But as I was saying, movies were made by the studio, not an auteur director at one point in history. Not only was this Wizard of Oz end up with multiple directors, but the script was written by about a dozen people, and most of the production decisions that are so iconic now are overseen not just by the director, but all sorts of people in the studio. And that makes it really hard to tell like who came up with what, or why they chose a certain idea. And it also says how hard it was to make movies back then. There are so many stories about the production of The Wizard of Oz that it's become its own folk folklore. It's an urban legend, and... That's literally folklore. And like a lot of folklore, it was born out of things being really tough and kind of scary even. The people in this movie were working very long, very hard days in uncomfortable costumes under incredibly hot lights that they needed to get the Technicolor right. Um, the set was full of munchkins who, as Judy Garland will tell us later in her life in so many interviews, were hard partiers and came to set drunk, according to her. But no, by the way, no munchkin killed themselves on the set. That is a myth. As far as we know, no one actually died on The Wizard of Oz, the filming of it, that we know of. But like the Dark Side of the Moon thing, the Pink Floyd stuff, it's sort of myth sticks because it's cool and creepy and interesting. Um, Another less morbid but very probably more true legend about the film is that the coat worn by Professor Marvel, that threadbare, cool, fancy coat. Um, they found that in a warehouse. And when they looked at the label on it of the person who had owned it years before in a theater company, it was L. Frank Baum. 
Another well-known story about the movie is that Buddy Epson was the original Tin Man before Jack Haley took over that role. Epson famously was nearly poisoned by the aluminum dust in the initial Tin Man makeup that they tried out on him, and he had to be hospitalized. He nearly died. They changed that process before Jack Haley took over, but no one told him why Buddy Epson had left the movie, so he was sort of going in there blind. I haven't got a brain. Only straw. How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? I don't know. But some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? Yes, I guess you're right. Another person who, like Buddy Epson, had some bad reactions with her makeup was Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West, and whose green complexion was achieved using a makeup that had copper in it. When she makes her big exit from Munchkinland early in the movie, there's that big fireball... That actually caught her on fire, including her makeup, and she got third-degree burns. She was seriously injured and hospitalized and off the job for months. So, yeah, when people say this movie feels kind of cursed, you understand why. (laughs) But let's use that as a way to talk about that green skin. I don't think we modern witches understand how much of the popular image of a witch comes from this movie. Nearly every element of the stereotypical Halloween witch is from the Wicked Witch of the West. Right here. And most of them came from the movie and not the book. And yeah, it's entirely because of the Wizard of Oz that the witch we imagine for Halloween is a witch with green skin. Now, this witch is a crone. And witches have been crones for a long time. That stereotype goes back centuries to the grim fairy tales and even earlier because women with power are scary and the only thing scarier than a woman with power is a woman who won't be a sexual object or isn't looking for other sexual conquests also crones represent death and magic in that very creepy way that goes all the way back to plays like macbeth and those three witches or even irish myths of the morrigan or celtic myths of the kaliak You find these magical, scary old women who were just the creepiest thing you could imagine, but were also goddesses of death and power all over. So that's one of the many reasons crones and witches have been associated for a very long time. The witch as a crone is an image as old as, well, the crone. But the more modern touch is the hat. Now, we know the Wizard of Oz was not the first to put a pointy hat on a witch, That's another old image that's complicated. Some witches believe the conical hat is a symbol of the cone of power and magical rituals, but there's not much that backs that up. There's historians that theorize that the witch's conical hat is related to the Yudin hat, a hat that Jews were required required to wear in areas of Europe in the 13th century to identify them. This headgear became associated with anti-Semitism and the idea that Jews were in league with the devil and thus became associated with witches, so that's a bit of a yikes. Still others link the witch hat to anti-Quaker prejudice in early America, because it does look like a Quaker hat. And still others say these hats were used by alewives to brew beer, and beer making is also associated with magic and potions and all that good stuff. So we don't know where the pointy witch's hat really came from. But Baum's original Wicked Witch wore them in the illustrations of the book. And the costume designer, Adrian, made it fashion with that wide brim and veil. Also, I think he added those fabulous stripes on the socks for the Witch of the East. 
But one thing Baum and his illustrator didn't include was green skin. Yes, before this movie, witches didn't have green skin. There are some weird urban myths that say witches are shown with green skin because the women in witch trials were so bruised and malnourished that they looked green, but that's not true. The reason for this was technicolor. The same goes for turning those silver slippers into rubies. They just looked better that way and stood out, just the way Hamilton stood out as a green, magical old woman against the yellow of the yellow brick road and the bright colors of Munchkinland. Necessity is the mother of invention, and technicolor is the mother of witches, I guess. I love the way this movie uses color, by the way. The transition from the sepia of Kansas to the technicolor of Oz is still breathtaking, 80 years later. Dorothy walking out that door is probably my favorite shot of the movie, though as a kid I was also obsessed with the horse of a different color sequence, which was also an awesome use of technicolor. This movie solidifies something witches know, that color is magic. And green as a color for a witch really works, not just visually, but in a very literal magical sense. We still practice green witchcraft. In the pagan pantheon, there is the green man and the green knight as part of Arthurian lore. Green people are part of myths, and they're usually very magical and witchy. They're tied to the earth and the other world. Maybe that's why the image of a green-skinned witch worked so well and became so ubiquitous. It tapped into something deeper. And also, this movie was insanely popular and hit at a time when we were kind of solidifying our pop culture monster pantheon. Margaret Hamilton's Wicked Witch became the ultimate witch in the same way that Bela Lugosi's Dracula defined the look of vampires for decades, or Boris Karloff's Creature in Frankenstein also became the default Frankenstein. I want to note here that both of those movies are also from the 30s, though they were from 1931, and they also weren't the first depictions of their respective monsters on screen, but nonetheless they became the faces we associated with those monsters. And weirdly, it was only the monstrous witch that became a cultural icon, specifically of witchiness, which speaks to how we still saw witches as monsters, even though we had a good witch in this movie. Because the Wicked Witch is just one of many witches of Oz, and yet she's the witch we remember. Our Halloween decorations are all green ladies on brooms, not a redhead in a bubble. But maybe Glinda did start the whole great trend that all the best witches are redheads. Glinda and the Wicked Witch both became iconic. The Wicked Witch in particular because the Wizard of Oz itself became a cultural staple. But that did take time. The original run of the movie was a pretty modest hit and it saw a few re-releases. But what made it iconic was actually television. It started airing on TV in 1956 and really hasn't stopped since then. It was also one of the first movies, as you might know from my earlier story, that was issued on VHS. It's just quintessential family entertainment like Disney, and that works because it's a bit scary, a bit magical, and it's wonderful. And if it's not clear by now, yes, this film is actually wonderful. It's a perfect mix of so many things. But one of the elements that helps it to endure is just the magic. It's the melancholy and the camp that made Dorothy and her friends icons of gay culture in the 20th century. For me, reading queerness into a text is a lot like the same way I read paganism into a text. There's not a lot of explicit pagan or queer representation up until 
the last few decades, and for pagan representation, there is actually not a lot anywhere. I'm a fangirl, after all, and that's the way I relate to media. Not just to passively consume it, but to remix it and reclaim it and transform it. Fandom is, in that way, its own kind of alchemy. We can take something that was meant to be about the gold standard, or that relied on witches as emblems of evil, and we can find that within them messages of hope for queer people, or real magical lessons. So, let me talk about what these witches and their familiars say about magic, and how they each have influenced the popular perception of the witch. So yes, this movie defined the literal image of the bad witch, but it also popularized the idea of a good witch. A witch that didn't have to be a hag, or eat babies, or destroy men. Glinda's look was more influential, I think, on the future looks of fairy godmothers than on witches. And as an aside, I bought my daughter this little pack of fairy toys a while ago, and the fairy queen is literally Glinda. But the idea that a witch could be nice, that's really actually very important, because until then, we were monsters. But here the witch, the feminine, was in many ways, many things. Monstrous, motherly, meek and mild, and ultimately magical. Doesn't that sound kind of like a goddess archetype? I have a theory about witches and media. Actually, I have a lot of theories that you'll get to hear on this podcast, but here's one of them. Where we find a magical woman, it often reflects two different things. The first is the surface and the intent, which is how witches reflect our fears and the fears of the mainstream, usually the fears of men and the patriarchy, fear of powerful women and all that jazz. But the second part of my theory is about the deeper meaning, the one that we have to use our fanish magic to find, wherein a magical woman is actually a reflection of a lost goddess, a powerful woman lost to myth long ago. I know this sounds kind of woo-woo and crazy, but whatever, it's a paganism and magic podcast and I can use my fangirl magic however I want. Heck, I use it to know in my soul that Dean Winchester is by at a total bottom, so I can find goddesses and pagan symbolism in The Wizard of Oz if I want. But it's not hard. In my mind, there are three witches in this movie. The Wicked Witch, Glinda, and Dorothy. Glinda does ask if she's a witch, and she does have a magical journey. And what do we get from that? It's a triple goddess, a maiden mother crone trinity, they represent three different faces of power and of feminine archetypes, and I kind of love that. But there's other magical symbolism in here as well. Dorothy is part of a foursome, so we got to be able to find some elemental associations here, right? On one hand, our heroes each are endangered by the four different elements. Dorothy is transported by the air with the cyclone. The Tin Man is frozen stiff by water. The Scarecrow is frightened by fire. And the lion is humbled because he cannot rule over the animals of the earth and the forest. But they also use different elements and exemplify their powers. The Tin Man is the epitome of love. It's what he longs for. He's literally an empty vessel for it. That's water. He's an actual chalice. The Scarecrow is made out of staves. He's literally a perch for birds. He's air. He's about ideas and movement. He literally creates and recreates himself as an idea. The lion, well, he's cowardly, but he really is an example of bravery and passion and being yourself and going for it, even though you could be extinguished. And that's the essence of fire as an element. 
And that leaves Dorothy as Earth, I guess, and I like that. She's about the home, about slow growth, about keeping her feet on the ground. She's an example of potential and determined, deliberate heroism. And that's not as showy as the others, but it's just as important, and it's ultimately the foundation of everything that they accomplish. Yes, I'm an earth sign. You can probably tell that by now. But for me, the big spiritual lesson of The Wizard of Oz isn't specifically pagan. It's universal, but you find it stated best in my mind in pagan and Wiccan spaces. But you can find it in Buddhist thought as well. For me as a witch, I don't have a sacred text. My lessons come from nature. But if there is one piece of pagan writing that's most meaningful to me, it's The Charge of the Goddess by Dorian Valiente. And the part that stays with me that I recite to myself over and over again, the ultimate secret that for me defines magical practice is this. You who would seek to know me know all your seeking and yearning will be in vain unless you know the mystery. For if that which you seek you do not find within yourself, you will never find it outward. For behold, I have been with you from the beginning, and I am that which is attained at the end of desire." Isn't that just another way of saying that you had the ruby slippers on your feet all along? You just had to learn to believe in yourself. It's the same as Dorothy stating the ultimate message of this movie. If I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any farther than my own backyard. Because if I can't find it there, I wasn't lost to begin with. This message that the ultimate secret of magic and power is within us, is the essence of magic and paganism for me, because we hold the magic of the cosmos and the spark of the divine within us. That's what makes us different from religions of the book devoted to a distant, separate god who really just might be a man behind a curtain. We find the divine and magical not just in the natural world, but within us as part of the natural world and as vessels for the divine spark. Now, there are other movies that have this message. I'll talk about them probably in later episodes. One of them is one of my favorite kids' movies, or probably one of my favorite movies ever, I'll be honest, Frozen 2. And yes, also Kung Fu Panda. These are kids' movies because they relate to fundamental truths that we learned in childhood, by the way. But The Wizard of Oz is this powerful thing in our culture because it's so well-known. And the simple notion of there's... No place like home, that you don't have to seek a place over the rainbow if you look within. That's eternal. We connect to that. The Wizard of Oz didn't just use witches, it changed witches. It defined us for a generation. And also as witches and the roles of women changed, Oz changed. We got remixes like The Wiz, terrifying sequels like Return to Oz, Weird TV adaptations like sci-fi's Tin Man, which was really good, actually. NBC's Emerald City series, which was, oh, fine. And whatever the heck they were doing on Once Upon a Time with Zelina, or whatever they called the Wicked Witch. And we also got the story from the witch's point of view with Wicked, the first in book, then as a fantastic musical. And that book and show made Elphaba Green. Because despite her origins in the book and our souls, we know what she's like in celluloid. She's always been green. And it made her an outsider in the book and incredibly powerful. I can and probably will do entire episodes about these later adaptations, so I'm not going to talk about that terrible James Franco movie. We do not speak of it. 
But that actually brings me to my conclusion, sort of. This story endures. These witches endure because they change over time and with different viewers. They evolve and connect to and teach us in new ways. And we need that. We need stories to believe in because that's how we become Dorothy. That's how we become better witches. Stories are our journey to another realm. Every movie and show we watch, and indeed every story we hear that affects us, not just as an audience, but as witches and pagans. This podcast is about diving into witchcraft and magic and paganism and how they're portrayed to the media because media matters and story matters. When we first gathered around the fires millennia ago, we probably didn't list the top nine best ways to kill a mammoth. We expressed these things and the lessons we had learned through stories. Stories are how we understood the gods, how we learned about magic, how we learned about the world, and that's still true now. To have the bravery to embark on a complete spiritual life, we need the heart as much as our head. That's what we learned from Dorothy and her three companions. And the way that story relates to fundamental emotional truths, that's why it's the best way to learn and understand things that may otherwise be unknowable. There are things you learn from fiction that you can never really get from nonfiction because there's magic in stories. They're what make us human. Like a Kansas twister transporting us to another world, a different, beautiful world, we can learn profound truths in these stories. Whether it's watching a movie or reading an ancient myth, we all become Dorothy when we interact with story, and through it, like she did, we learn to see the world in a different way, and we, hopefully, become better people or more enlightened spiritual practitioners. I mean, that's the goal, at least. But we can learn so much from stories, not in just what they say, but how they say it. An ancient myth of a flood or battle between gods and old gods and new can hint at some forgotten history that was very real. And the reason the story was told, and how it was told, and by who and for what audience, that can tell us a lot about the era, or eras the story was born. And we can learn so much from all these different contexts. Like a pair of magic shoes passed from hand to hand, or okay, foot to foot. The creation and subsequent use of a story is a tale in and of itself. But stories matter because stories are how we learn compassion. It's how we walk in another person's skin and feel their pain and learn. And that's the note I kind of want to end on, because Dorothy is a character of compassion more than anything. She succeeds in her journey because she's kind, because she's welcoming of outcasts. Even her defeat of the Wicked Witch happens because of an act of compassion. She's trying to put out the fire, not trying to kill her. It's sort of an accident. So that's pretty much why I'm here with this podcast about fictional witches, because we might not learn any good spells from them, but that's not the point. Whether or not they're accurate isn't the point. With story, we're meant to learn bigger lessons about this world and the next, about history and legend and magic and love and hope. In witchcraft, we have talismans, objects infused with power to protect us or to help us with our magical goals. 
That power can be a comfort in dark times, or it can be about opening a door to another world. And that's what a story is. A talisman. A magic spell that transports you, changes you, and sometimes even can feel like home. And after all, there's no place like home. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode of the Real Magic Podcast. I can't express how exciting it is to be starting this project. We're going to be having an episode dropping every Friday in October and the first three Fridays of November. So there's a lot of content coming your way. So please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever feed you're using it. And you can also follow us on Twitter at RealMagicPod or on Instagram, also at RealMagicPod. And if you enjoy me and my work, you can find me on Twitter at FangirlingJess, or you can look for my work on the Mary Sue. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week, and blessed be. Goodbye. Goodbye, cruel world. Goodbye, cruel world. Goodbye to life. Goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye, goodbye.